0: So, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, it says this. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than the others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect.
1: Well do grab your Bibles and, and keep them open there at Matthew chapter five and we'll have a look at our passage this morning. Because there's a, there's a word that appears in this this chapter, this passage we've just read, that I I think actually sums up almost the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, and perhaps even more than that, the whole of the teaching of the Bible. And this word appears for the very first time on Jesus' lips in our passage this morning, the first time that you'll read it in the Gospels. Now, I wonder what you think that word is, if you've seen it there. I'll tell you in a moment if you're not quite sure. But our passage today contains some of the most lofty teaching that you'll ever read anywhere in the world, in any philosophy or religion. The words that we've just heard Phil read earlier are some of the most highest things that people are, are called to. And they, uh, they attract many people, they think, wow, this is an incredible saying. They also cause many people to despise God's word and his people. They detest or mock it because makes Christians look weak or powerless, they say. But as I've read these verses again and again this week, I've kept being drawn to, to some remarkable stories of people who I, I know, I've read about, who have lived out the words in the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I want to share just some of those stories with you this morning as we, as we go through, because you see, God's word is, is alive. It is meant to be lived out. It is thoroughly practical. And it changes the way that we live. It's not just a philosophy that, you know, it's meant to stretch our mind in in some way, keep you in the study room, but it is a a life that is to be lived. And so Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here that we're going through, it describes the kingdom of heaven, doesn't it? It describes what the life of every Christian ought to look like in his kingdom. In, In the very next chapter, chapter six, is the Lord's Prayer that we know so well. And there's a line that Jesus will teach us to pray where he says, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the kingdom is what we long to see established here on earth, and, and it is being established here even now. Though it is not through a, a physical king here on this earth sitting on a, on a physical throne in some physical palace in some city of the world, but this kingdom of, of heaven is growing and spreading right now in the life of every believer here on earth today. And as we live out these words of the Sermon on the Mount, we see God's kingdom coming to this world, to this dark and this broken world, and and that's how we see lives being transformed by the very word of God. And, And as he makes us new people, what does he do? Well, he gives us a new heart, doesn't he? He makes us new creations with a heart that that longs for his word, that longs for his ways, and will live out the, the values of his kingdom. And, and often they're gonna be so countercultural to this world that we live in. Now it goes against the, the grain of society, it often seems so unnatural. know, these words that we've read, loving your enemies, seem so, so difficult in a sense, and yet what that shows us is that none of us can do this in our own strength, can we? Many even think this teaching is just foolishness. What's needed for each one of us is to be born again, and to become a new creature. You, you remember Eustace the dragon from Narnia's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. He was a bit of selfish and, and nasty character. That was until he became undragoned, if you remember the story. And Aslan strips the, the dragon hide off him, and then he is a new creature. And it's just a great picture as C.S. Lewis often does of drawing out in in stories what the Christian life is often like. How an act of God comes and makes us into new people, new creatures with, with new hearts. And there's three statements in our passage that we're gonna look at this morning. They're about our words, the things that we say. They're about our actions, things we do, and ultimately it's about our heart and the things that we love. And, and these three, I think, are, are all nicely, actually, illustrated in, the, in another story, in, in the, a true story, a remarkable life of a woman who was a watchmaker. And she was the very first watchmaker to license, who was licensed to make these watches in, in the Netherlands. Her name was Cornelia. But that's not why she was remarkable. She was a Christian, and she lived out the ideals of the Sermon on the Mount. And when she was nearly 50 years old, World War II broke out. And she and her family, they helped hide about 800 Jews in their home through the war. And they had a secret room hidden in her bedroom behind a wall, and they made a secret wall there which no one could see behind. And, and whenever there was a raid or a search party in the, in the town, there was an alarm signalled in the house and they would all send those who were hiding in the house up to the secret room. And so when the, the Gestapo came through, they couldn't see or, or find any of, of the Jews living hiding in her home. Now you probably have heard of her. Her name's also better known as Corrie, Corrie Ten Boom. She wrote a great book called The Hiding Place. Well, during the war, sadly, in 1944, her family and Corrie were arrested. She was found. Although as they raided her house that day, there were six Uh, people hiding in their hiding place that weren't discovered. But Corrie and her family were taken off to prison. Her father died very shortly later in prison. Then her and her sister were transferred to the Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. And there they went through some of the most humiliating torture and beatings. They were stripped naked and paraded around by just evil Nazis who... She did some of the most despicable things you could think of. Her sister, Betsy, died as well in that prison, but Corrie would keep her hope in the Lord and she would lead Bible studies during uh, the days when they could, after their hard work. It was a place for political prisoners and they were beaten and and starved for months. Now, just, just after Christmas Day in 1944, Corrie was released from prison. It was an accident. There was a clerical error and she was somehow set free. And a few days after that, the rest of her cell were sent off to the gas chambers. But she survived. And she was a woman with a deep love for God. Her heart had been transformed by the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. And after the war, what she did was travel around and tell people about God's love and how he had transformed people's lives, and how he offers forgiveness to even to the worst of sinners. And just two years after the war, she was in Germany, in Munich, and she was, she was speaking and sharing of God's forgiveness, and then after the service, a man came up to her, and she recognized him instantly, because he was a former Nazi guard who was in that very concentration camp where her sister died. And he came up to Corrie, and he says this, he asked for almost the impossible thing. This is what this man said. He said, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard in there. But since that time, the man said, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there. But I, I would like to hear it from your lips as well, fraulein. And he put out his hand to shake hers. And he said, will you forgive me? Now this is how Corrie describes that moment. She says, I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion, I I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, I I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current, it started in my shoulder, and it, and it raced down my arm, and it sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. And for a long moment, we, we grasped each other's hands and the former guard and, and the former prisoner. I've never known God's love so intensely as I did then. I don't know how you react when you, when you hear a story like that. And I'm not, sure, I'm not sure it's possible to even understand or imagine the horrors and the hurt that Corrie and her family had been through, let alone to understand what it would be like to be confronted by a former Nazi prison guard. But such is the power of the gospel that saves even the worst of sinners and is able to heal even the most wounded of hearts. In our passage, Jesus says in verse 44, he says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Love your enemies. Now The word from the sermon that appears on Jesus' lips for the very first time in the Gospels is that word there, love. Love your enemies, he says. Did you guess that when you saw it earlier? Because God is love. It's the foundational word that describes who he is and what he has done in this world. It's the essential characteristic of his kingdom and of every citizen in it. It was certainly true in Corrie's life. During the war she loved and helped those many Jews, people she didn't know, people who perhaps didn't even deserve her love but she went the extra mile for them, at great cost to her and her family, even to her own freedom and dignity. And then after sharing about God's forgiveness in Munich at that service, she was challenged to put her money where her mouth was. Did she really believe in God's love to forgive, even perhaps the worst of sinners? Would she be true to her word as she had just been speaking about? And ultimately, could she really love her enemy? And she did, and she could, because she had first met Jesus, and she had experienced his love for herself. And I find it fascinating that this word love, and you know, it appears here first on Jesus' lips. Now, when it does, Jesus doesn't say that we should love God, with all our heart, soul, and mind, he will do later. He doesn't say that we should love our neighbor as ourself, he will do later, but his very first word, his very first mention of love in the Gospels is that we would love our enemies. I find that so significant. Why would that be? Well, I think it's because to love your enemy, it gets to the very heart of the Gospel, When you you read in Romans chapter five, verse eight, it says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? See, God loved us when we were his enemies. Just remember what the Lord Jesus has done for each of us. Now these words, they were not merely theoretical for him as he spoke the Sermon on the Mount. They weren't some lofty ideal that would never be tested in real life. Jesus fulfilled perfectly every word of the sermon that he spoke. He was arrested in the dead of night. He was betrayed by one of his closest followers. He was mocked by the ones who were the teachers and guardians of scripture and he too was stripped naked, he was beaten. He was tortured, he was humiliated before the crowds. He was paraded through the streets before his arms and his legs had nails rammed through them into that cross. Can you see the agony on his face? The horror of that Good Friday And as he's raised up for the world to see, with his arms outstretched, the sky goes dark, the earth begins to shake, what does he say when he hangs on that cross? He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. What love you see in the Lord Jesus as he hung there for his enemies. What love that drove him to give his life for you and for me. He didn't resist against those who would murder him, even though he could have called down the very angels of heaven and all authority. He hung there on that cross because he loves you. He loves me. He loved his enemies, even to death. And if we call ourselves Christians, we must take our place beside our Lord Jesus. In Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, Jesus loves you. Even while you were his enemy, even while we, we live a life consumed with, with comfort and pleasure, God has given us every life and breath and everything we have in this world. That, is, that itself is a wonder, isn't it? That, that we should exist in all, at all, in, the, in this vast universe. Our passage, verse 45, it says that God makes the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. He sends the rain on the good and the evil. He shows his grace, his blessing to all regardless of, of who they are and yet our sinful nature and our hearts, we ignore him and we disregard his word. We mock his church. We make ourselves gods in his place. This is the world. So why would God love his enemies? Why would he love such a rebellious people as us? Because, because he is love. And there's no there's nothing more that, that we can really add to that. He is love, and I don't know why he would offer me forgiveness. I've done myself terrible things, I have dishonored him, I've hurt others, and yet I have received the grace of God and his love and his salvation. I've received a new heart that, that loves him and longs for his things. My desires have been changed so that, so that I seek the things of his kingdom rather than, than my own heart and selfish desires. Now that's a long process, I'm on this journey as we all are. It's a journey that will last the rest of our lives as we become more like our Savior. But as we become these new creatures that are are described by this sermon, they affect not just the words that we say, but our actions and the way we live, and and it changes our very hearts. Our actions, you see, they are changed. When like in, in verse 39 of our passage, if we're slapped on the right cheek, Now, we we turn the other cheek as well. Well, if you're forced to go that extra mile, you've actually go two because we are freed to go beyond what the world expects of us. We have everything in Christ, everything we will ever need. And so we don't need to hold on to those little moments, our pride, our dignity, the things that this world treasures. We are free because God loves us. Now, this world... It can be a very unfair and an unjust place, and and we ought to work for justice. We ought to to fight for righteousness in every area of our society, but while we want to see God's kingdom come here in the communities of the world, when it comes to to personal grievances, we, we do not take revenge. That saying in verse 38, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, it is good. It's a good saying, it's a moral principle, it's what justice is founded upon, it's what our, our, our courts and, and those in authority, they follow, it's good. But the individual Christian, we follow Jesus' words here, and those of, of Romans 12 too. In, in Romans 12, Paul says this, he says, "'Love, it must be sincere. "'Do not repay anyone evil for evil, be careful, to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. These words do, do change and affect the very way we live our lives. We entrust all things to God and we turn the other cheek when we need to. Have you seen that film, The Passion of the Christ? I found out, it came out 15 years ago. And when we first came out, it was such a powerful, moving film that retold the events surrounding Jesus' death. And there's a scene in that film that, that impacted me so much when I saw it. It's, it's the moment where Jesus is chained to a, uh, to a stake in the ground, and his hands are tied together, and, it, and he's been beaten and, and flogged by the centurions, by the Roman guards around him. His hands were together, he couldn't escape, he couldn't protect himself. He was stripped naked, and he just was tied to the stake as a, as a whip, a rope made with bone and, and stones inside. It was, was flagged again and again down his back, and every lashing just tore strips of skin off him, and you saw the agony of his face, the pain after every whip, and and when he could stand no longer, he, he collapsed to the ground. I don't know if you remember this moment. And he just collapsed and, and he was, imagine the stake was there and he was on the ground, just bleeding and in pain and in agony. You could see it and he, and he couldn't get up it seemed. And, and the centurion standing behind sort of looked down on him satisfied that he had broken him and, and beaten him. And then this moment happens. Jesus, in all his pain and agony, he pulls himself up off the ground And he tries to stand, he's bent over, he's bleeding, he's broken, and yet he stands up again. And as he stands, he knows that he'll be beaten once more. He knows that that centurion will bring his whip out again and again and again until he breaks. And you see his eyes, it's just wincing at every lashing that comes down on him. And and you see, as he stood up at that moment, he stood up for me and for you. Jesus had said earlier, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is what Jesus did literally for each one of us. It still puts a lump in my throat when I think about him there, broken, and yet standing up again, living it out for us. Now my desire, for us all this morning is that we will be gripped again by all that our Savior has done. But, but not that we would just see this as you know, some impossible ideal that, that only the creator, creator of the world could fulfill. But that as citizens of his kingdom, every believer is filled with the very same spirit of Jesus. You know, that spirit that filled Cory Tembo to care for those in need and nearly at the cost of her life, certainly at the cost of her families. And in that same spirit, that enabled her to forgive, to love her enemies. Now I've read so many stories this week of people like her who who turned the other cheek, who went the extra mile. They loved their enemies, they prayed for those who persecuted them. And I've wanted to share so many with you this morning because they're just incredible. Let me just share a couple more from Martin Luther King. Who again and again showed what nonviolent resistance looks like. Even when his enemies were, were threatening to kill him and, and his family, even when they did bomb his family home, he was stabbed. He was put in prison 20 times. And yet he traveled around the south of America in churches and on marches and he preached, Love your enemies. And he did, he never retaliated. You can listen to his sermons still on YouTube. I'll follow them, incredibly moving, so powerful. He loved his enemies. Around the same time, in in 1956, another remarkable man called Jim Elliott was killed trying to share the good news of Jesus with the Hurani people of Ecuador. They spared him and his four missionary friends to death. But his wife Elizabeth and their one-year-old daughter They went back into the jungle that very same year that her husband was killed. And he went to the very same people who had killed her husband. Not with revenge, not with bitterness in her heart, but with the love of Jesus. And she wanted to share the gospel with this tribe in the jungle. And she did, and many of the Harani people turned to Jesus because she was living out the Sermon on the Mount. She loved her enemies and prayed for those who persecuted her. Or even just a few years ago, in Egypt, on Palm Sunday in 2017, I looked it up. I was actually preaching here at Oak Hall at the Stafford College on this very day. But that same morning that we were gathered together in Egypt, at St Mark's Cathedral in Alexandria, a suicide bomber walked into that cathedral and detonated his bomb killing 16 people who had gathered to worship there that very morning. He had 12 kilograms of explosives strapped to his body. And yet, very shortly after that moment, the wife of the security guard who who worked at that very church, day after day, loving and serving the people of that community, his wife went onto national television, and she said these words. She says, I'm not angry at the one who did this. I'm telling him, may God forgive you, and we also forgive you. Believe me, he says, we forgive you. Now what must change a person's heart to be able to say that to one's enemies, to one who hates you? Surely this is only God's love can change a heart to do such a thing. These are some of the most extreme examples of, of people living out God's teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. There are many more I'd love to share because I find them just truly inspiring. And I think it's often when we see others doing something that I think, well if I was in that situation, I hope I too would be able to respond like they did. And I hope that each one of us this morning has some sort of stirring in our hearts that at least longs for something like that. And when you have that, that you see is the, is the work of the Holy Spirit in each one of us, drawing us to him, changing our hearts to become more like the words of the Sermon on the Mount here. Now I hope none of us ever have to face the sort of things that the people I've shared about this morning have. But in smaller ways, we, we can cultivate these attitudes in our lives here in Caterham, in England. Now we are people whose, whose words can be trusted, I haven't said much about our opening paragraph. But when we say, yes, I'll pray for you, do you pray for them? Are your words yes, yes? Make sure we are people of our word. When we're taken advantage of, do we we go beyond what the world expects of us? Maybe your teacher keeps the whole class back over lunchtime because one child was messing around in the class. Rather than be resentful and and bitter, do we go the extra mile? Do we stay behind later even and help her tidy up the books once all the kids have gone? And do we love our enemies? What does that look like here today? Whether it's just our spiteful colleague at work, spreading rumors, our neighbor who's so difficult to get on with, keeps harassing our family and making life difficult, what does Jesus suggest we do? How do we love today? When we pray for them, that's what Jesus says. Pray for our enemies. Because that's real love. When you pray, you have to mean what you are saying. You have to really want something good for our, our, those who, who, who despise us, perhaps. Or well, we can just say hello to them. That's what Jesus suggests there. Greet them. In verse 47, he says, if we greet only our own people, well, what good is that? Well, you're not doing any more than anyone else. Don't even pagans do that? So even a simple hello to those that find it so difficult to get on with. It can be so disarming when you genuinely care for the, for the well-being of a difficult person. See, these things, these, this is the heart of the gospel, that we are citizens of heaven, citizens of a kingdom whose king loves us that even while we were his enemies, he died for each one of us. And may the same spirit that led him to that cross for a a rebellious world, may that same spirit live in each one of us as we devote our lives to him and serving him today in this world. Shall I pray? Almighty God, we, we have heard some powerful words from your word. These sayings of the Lord Jesus are so so great, so lofty, so countercultural. Lord, we cannot do any of this in our own strength. But Lord, I pray that you might fill each one of us this morning with your very spirit to give us the hearts that that love our enemies, who go the extra mile, who are faithful in every word that we say. Lord, that you might be glorified in us and that you would be praised and your name lifted high in this world so that we would see your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.